Well, I think it is fitting as we transition away from the book of Acts to take a couple of weeks and speak about and think about the doctrine of the church. What is the church? Why does she exist? And what is the interest of every single believer in the church? And I will be right up front in this and make it clear that my aim in this is to raise high our view of the church and by the grace of God to increase in every one of us our love for Christ's church. I was asked by someone what the major takeaway uh, or the great gain was from the recent pastor's conference that I attended. And the theme of the conference was the church, Christ's church. And I summed up my personal experience by stating, because of that conference, which was basically unfolding for us over several days, the great significance of the church of Jesus Christ and the purpose of the church and the significance of the church in Christ's purpose and in the heart of God. And as a result of being inundated with such teaching, teaching that was lifting high the church, viewing her in effect through the eyes of, of the triune God and through the eyes of Christ, as a result of soaking in the reality of the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ, I love you all, Christ church, more. And that is a really good thing. That is a really good takeaway, a good gain from a conference. And so with that great end in view, I would like to take a couple of messages to lift high Christ's love for and his joy, Christ's joy in his church. And I would hope, brethren, that as a result, we might all more and more join our beloved Jesus in his love for and his delight in his church. And practically speaking, practically speaking, that we would all be more and more prioritizing the church, that that would be a great fruit that would flow from this. David Mathis at that conference exhorted us pastors with these words, seek to win your people to prioritize the church in their schedules. What if we cast a vision, he asked, for church-friendly families instead of insisting on family-friendly churches? What if godly dads and moms adjusted their family rhythms to prioritize the church? What if we built our families around the few but important weekly flashpoints of church life? Church, he suggested, is the big rock to put in the jar at the beginning of the week's schedule. All the other stuff are the little pebbles to get added in afterwards. Well, more about that later. Again, I think it is fitting as we finish up the book of Acts to focus some thought energy on the church. For I trust you would all agree when I suggest how the ministry of the Apostle Paul 
much of it chronicled for us in the book of Acts, was very much concerned with Christ's church. And not only was the ministry of Paul uh, focused on the church, but I would submit to you that the church was, was, the central, uh, was at the very center of Paul's very, very life in the rhythm of his Christian walk. Paul planted churches. Paul visited, returned to those churches, visiting them to encourage them. Paul wrote letters to those churches as he labored to encourage and to instruct his churches. Colossians 1.28, Him, Christ, we proclaim, says Paul, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, says Paul, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For this I toil and struggle, says Paul, to present everyone mature in Christ. In fact, some have recognized a development in Paul's letter to the churches where his focus moves from building community in his early letters to stabilizing community in his later prison epistles, especially Colossians and Ephesians, and finally to protecting the community through his pastoral epistles. Building, stabilizing, and protecting the church, the community of Christ. That is Paul's priority. And Paul, throughout his epistles, makes use of various forms of imagery to communicate the nature of the church in order to lift high the church. Paul uses a wide range of metaphors to describe the church, to describe what she is like. The church is the temple of God, a new humanity, the household of God, the very family of God. She is God's field and God's army, his pillar and bulwark of truth in the world. And the church is, of course, and amazingly, Christ's own body and Christ's own bride. This from Wayne Grudem. Each of the metaphors used for the church can help us to appreciate more of the richness of privilege that God has given us by incorporating us into the church. The fact that the church is like a family should increase our love and fellowship with one another. The thought that the church is like the bride of Christ should stimulate us and strive to strive for greater purity and holiness and also greater love for Christ and submission to him. The image of the church's branches in a vine should cause us to rest in him more fully. The idea of an agricultural crop should encourage us to continue growing in the Christian life and obtaining for ourselves and others the proper spiritual nutrients to grow. The picture of the church as God's new temple should increase our awareness of God's very presence dwelling in our midst as we come together and meet. 
The concept of the church as a priesthood should help us to see more clearly the delight God has in the sacrifices of praise and good deeds that we offer to him. The metaphor of the church as the body of Christ should increase our interdependence on one another and our appreciation of the diversity of gifts within the body. Again, each of the metaphors used for the church can help us to appreciate more of the richness of privilege that God has given us by incorporating us into his church. Well, brethren, it is the metaphor of the church as the bride of Christ that I have most in view this morning for our meditation. And and it is most fitting, I think, that the text from which we will be mining the gems of this most precious of themes is from the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, itself a most precious storehouse of such glories, a book with which the Jews referred to as the holiest of holies. So I would ask you to please stand if you're able, as is our tradition, for the hearing of God's word to be preached this morning from the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Chapter 1, verse 2. The Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. The bride here praising her beloved bridegroom. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. And then from chapter 4 and verse 10. Her beloved now, the bridegroom, praises her in return. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. Please be seated. Now I can't help but sense that there are two potential obstacles that may present themselves just now to some of you. One to some and to some the other or maybe both of them to some of you. Obstacles that will need to be overcome before you will be able to come along on this meditation in the fullest sense. The first is the way in which this book, The Song of Songs, is often presented by various scholars as being merely a book about human marriage. As they would deny that what is ultimately in view in the love song of all love songs is the true spiritual union and communion that exists between Christ and his bride, the church. Well, I hope that it is the case for all of us here that such an idea is quickly dismissed with the very common sense notion that Brother Paul Washer once articulated that if this book is not about Jesus, then what is it doing in my Bible? Amen? In other words, of course this book is ultimately about Jesus, for it is part of the Old Testament canon. And does not all the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament scriptures, point to Christ? But still, in an effort to bring us all along most efficiently over this first obstacle, I will turn to some wise words first from the Prince of Preachers, 
Charles Spurgeon. And then secondly, to the same from the saintly Machine, as he was referred to for years after his death. First from Spurgeon. The fact is that this book, The Song of Solomon, has been a puzzle to many men for the simple reason that it was not written for them at all. Learned men and wise men find this a stone on which they are broken to powder just because it was not written for them. Men who are disposed to laugh at Scripture find here an opportunity to exercise their profane wit just because the book is not written for them. In fact, many a Christian who reads it cannot understand it. And as good Joseph Irons says, this dwarfish age is not likely to esteem this book as it ought to be esteemed. For only those who have lived near to Jesus, have drunk out of his cup, have eaten his flesh and drank his blood, only those who know the fullness of the word communion can sit down to this book with delight and pleasure. And to such men these words are as wafers made with honey, manna, the food of angels. Every sentence is like gold and every word is like much fine gold. To which Spurgeon responds, when the Christian is nearest to heaven, this, this is the book he takes with him. And second, from Robert Murray Machane, There is no book of the Bible which affords a better test of the depths, the depth of a man's Christianity than the Song of Solomon. If a man's religion be all in his head, a well-set form of doctrines, built like mason work, stone above stone, but exercising no influence upon his heart, this book cannot but offend him. For there are no stiff statements of doctrine here upon which his heartless religion may be built. Or if a man's religion be all his fancy, if like pliable from Pilgrim's Progress, he be taken with the outward beauty of Christianity. If like the seed sown upon rocky ground, his religion is fixed only in the surface faculties of the mind, while the heart remains rock and unmoved. Though he will relish this book more than the first man, still there is a mysterious breathing of intimate affection in it, which cannot but stumble and offend him. But if a man's religion be a heart religion, if he hath not only doctrines in his head, but love to Jesus in his heart, if he hath not only heard and read of the Lord Jesus, but hath felt his need of him and been brought to cleave unto him as the chiefest among ten thousands and altogether lovely, then this book will be inestimably precious to his soul. For it contains the tenderest breathings of the believer's heart towards the Savior and the tenderest breathings of the Savior's heart again toward the believer. And so, with the first obstacle in the rear view mirror, I trust, 
we come now to the second. Namely, the imagery employed in our text by the bride and again by, by her beloved by way of contrast and comparison where both speak of the other's love as better than wine. My heart hurts to think that so precious an expression of love towards the Savior and towards us in return by Him would remain inaccessible to so many due to the perverse nature in which wine and its man-made counterparts today are being used and abused to the destruction of so many families, homes, lives, and souls. I grieve to think that the image is associated with modern day drunkenness or the bar scene or all that is associated with the ad campaign of the many modern varieties of grain alcohol would be creeping their way into this, this song of love, this most holy place, one that points ultimately to the pure, unadulterated and amazing love of Christ for his bride. The church. It is the case that those who have been touched by the ill effects of drunkenness and are understandably disgusted by the modern drinking scene can be unnecessarily hindered by it in gleaning glory from this text. And equally true is how those who choose to partake of the shadow, the sign, even in its modern desecrated state, can be hindered as well from gaining a view of that which is far and away better. It's the same dynamic that I quickly identified uh, as I was going through the Gospel of John some years ago now and, and got to John chapter 2. For in John 2 is the account of our Lord's providing wine enough for the wedding feast. An account that contained the miracle whereby, whereby Jesus turned water into wine, which served as a most significant sign to much glory. Glory that his disciples reportedly beheld through that sign and believed. And yet glory that is seemingly inaccessible by, to so many. For it is the case that for some there has grown almost a stigma of shame over that account where at best it is to be avoided and at worst an apology must be made for it. Or on the other hand, for so many others, our Lord's miracle sign in John 2 has sadly become nothing about his glory but merely a convenient proof text to justify their own consumption of alcoholic beverages. And so, before actually preaching that text, I took an entire sermon in an attempt to redeem the imagery, so to speak. And similarly, I would encourage you all now with just a handful of sentences to look beyond the modern desecration of the symbol, beyond the drinking customs of this current wicked generation, beyond the cursed barroom scene of today, and think instead of an ancient Jewish family reclining for dinner, so thankful to God for the spread of bread and wine that fills their table with his gracious provision and rejoicing in Jehovah Jireh, the God, their God, 
who provides. And how their table ultimately points to another table, our Lord's table, where we sit together, brethren, in familial fellowship before a spread of bread and of the fruit of the vine, before the gracious table that our beloved has prepared for us, his body given for us, his blood poured out for us, giving thanks to our God, to Jehovah Jireh, for his most abundant provision in Christ. And rejoicing, rejoicing with a joy inexpressible, in the reconciliation with our God. Or think of the week-long celebration of an ancient Jewish wedding, a most festive time of fellowship with one another in the presence of their God. An assembly so full of joy at the sight of this blessed union between a man and his wife, celebrating better than they know as their joy is but a shadow of the true and everlasting joy that exists in the blessed union to which marriage only points. That blessed union and communion that is enjoyed, enjoyed by Christ and by his bride, the church. In short, I would encourage you all to see in the wine here, in this morning's text, a sign, a symbol that in the Bible points to a most wholesome joy, a most wholesome joy and provision, and even the richest of joys, the richest earthly joy. And then, and then hear the words that the bride speaks to her beloved bridegroom. Hear the words that the church speaks to her beloved Jesus. Your love, your love is better than wine. Your love is better than the richest earthly joy. And then let us consider what this statement says about the church of Jesus Christ. How does this statement serve us to describe for us what the church is? What are those essential marks of the church put forth in this most precious of scriptures? Well, clearly the church is the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, the church has become the object then of Christ's love, his particular love. This is an identifying mark of the church, brethren. The church is the beloved of Jesus. The church is the one upon whom he has set his special, unique, particular, and most intimate love. And wouldn't it be a most gracious thing, brothers, we who are married, if the distinguishing mark upon our brides that which set her apart from all others and marked her off, marked her out, identifying her and describing her was the particular and even the spectacular love that her bridegroom has set upon her. A love that has become for her a great source of joy, even greater than the greatest of earthly joys. What is the church? What is the church? Well, the church is the beloved of Jesus, marked out, distinguished from all others by the particular 
amazing love that our Jesus has for us. This is what defines us above all else. We are known of Christ, loved of Christ, cherished by Jesus Christ. Christ's love for his church is not a generic, unspecific, general love that the Arminian might imagine. One that would merely make us the, make us the church a possible object of Christ's saving love. No, Christ's love for his church is a most specific and particular love. He loves his church with the love that a Calvinist rejoices in. A love that is utterly free, free as our sovereign God is free. To be gracious to whomever he will be gracious and to show mercy to whomever he will show mercy. To set his steadfast love upon whomever he will, even his eternal love. For Christ has loved his church before the foundations of the earth were laid. Christ is no new lover of his church, brethren. Before anything was made that has been made, Christ loved his church with a love vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free. The wind blows where it wishes, and so it is with the love of Christ. And yet, unlike the wind, Christ's love is never changing. He does not share the fickle love of man. No, Christ's love is a steadfast love. It is ever true, for it finds its origin, its uh, intensity, not in the church herself, not in the saint himself, praise God. Christ's love flows from his own heart, the heart of the God of whom it is written. He is love. Christ love his loved his church before the foundations of the earth were laid, and with the same eternal and infinite love, he loves his church still. And what more? Christ saw us, brethren, in the sin and in the unbelief that we were born into. Christ saw me, even seated for a time, in the seat of a scoffer. And yet he loved me still. And he gave himself for me, even while I was at enmity against him, even while I was dead in the trespasses and sins, in rebellion against him, even while I was hating him. Christ loved me. Christ loved us, his church. And what more, he loves us still, even this side of the cross, this side of grace received. Even though our love for him, even now, falls so far short of what he deserves. Though it might rightly be claimed, brethren, that we sin less, for we are no longer, by the grace of God, what we once were. However, we yet sin. And it might also rightly be said, brethren, That though we now sin less, as we now sin, we sin against grace and knowledge and love. And so I would submit to you that our sin now is greater still. And yet Christ loves us still. With the very same intensity that drove him to the cross, he loved us. With the same intensity that caused him to suffer and die for us. Christ loves his church still. For his is an enduring love, brethren. 
To the nth degree it is an enduring love. Though we fail him, yet does he love us. Though we slay him, yet does he love us. Christ does not throw off his bride. Though he finds countless uncleannesses in us, yet we find favor in his eyes still. Christ will never write his bride a certificate of divorce. He will never leave his bride, never forsake her. So far from it, his love for his church is true and it is fervent. Vast as the ocean is Christ's love for his bride, ever showering his church with loving kindness as a flood. Christ is a free love, an everlasting love, an enduring love, and a forgiving love. Oh, how we have been forgiven. Amen. His is an accepting love. Oh, how he has received us, welcomed us, brought us into his inner chambers to dwell now and forever in his love. His is a caring love. Oh, how Jesus cares for his bride and nurtures her. His is a providing love. Oh, how he provides for his bride and in that provides for her joy. It is a redeeming love. It is by his own blood that we have been bought out of slavery to sin and damnation. And it is a sanctifying love. It is by his hand, his own hand, that we are made clean and will be made fit for heaven. And his is a resurrecting love. A resurrecting love. He loves us completely, soul and body, and will raise up these bodies when he returns. What is the church? What is the church? The church is the most fortunate object of Christ's particular and amazing love. And therefore... Secondly, the church of Christ, above all others, bears the mark of true joy, an everlasting joy, an exceeding great joy, a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Oh, what joy in being loved like this by the King of glory. Oh, what joy there is in being received, accepted, welcomed, and cared for like this, even by our God himself. Oh, what joy of being made the object of Christ's special saving love. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love, O Lord, is better than wine. Here then is another mark that is upon the church, a descriptor of the church. As any bride rejoices in being the object of her bridegroom's affection, so the church rejoices with a joy that far exceeds the type and shadow, the mere momentary picture. As the church is a heavenly institution, so her joy is a heavenly joy, far exceeding all earthly joys far better than even the richest earthly joy for her bridegroom's love is to her better than wine. 
Spurgeon, in pondering the love of Christ, uh, comparing it to wine, muses on Christ's love yet in the vine, yet in the cluster. That is his love and predestination and eternal election. And as well, Christ's love in the basket. The grapes now gathered in, gathered from the sacred vine and thrown into the basket, entering into his creation and amongst the sons of men. Christ's love and his infinite condescension coming down to us. And finally, he muses on the love of Christ in the wine press. The love of Christ in the wine press. As the grapes are pressed to bring forth the sweet, sweet fruit of the vine, that symbol of great joy, so our beloved was pressed, crushed, to bring forth such sweetness, such sweet joy flowing from such bitter pain. The love of Christ in the winepress, the love of Christ in the cross, oh, how horrendous the gore, and yet, oh, how sweet the joy that flows from it. There is perhaps no greater vantage point from which to view the love of Christ for his church brethren than to view his love in the winepress his love as it is manifest on the cursed tree. And so behold his love. Behold his love and believe your sins forgiven, swallowed up in his love. Behold this amazing love and rejoice in the reconciliation with God that he has purchased for you. Rejoice in his love for you, his church, his bride, giving himself wholly for you. For us and praise him praise him with the the words of the love song of all love songs your love O Christ your love O Christ is better than wine better than the greatest earthly joy and oh what joy there is found as well in knowing that our faithful bridegroom has saved the best wine for last here is a bit of that glory that I mentioned that was revealed in the wedding at Cana, in which our precious Jesus stepped in to provide for the feast, joy enough for the feast, even saving the best wine, the best joy for last. We cannot exhaust the love of Christ, for his is an infinite love. For in Christ we are loved, brethren, by the infinite God. And as much as we receive of his love here and now in this life, having been predestined in love and called and forgiven in love and justified in love and sanctified in love and preserved in his love unto glory, there is yet reserved for his church, his bride after this life, a love that is according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, immeasurable, immeasurable in fact, the very reason Paul gives there for why God saved us in love is so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness, of his grace and kindness in love towards us in Christ Jesus. So that forever and ever he might, he might utterly swallow us up in the infinite riches 
of his love for us in Christ Jesus. Indeed, our bridegroom has saved the best wine for last, the best of his love, and our greatest delight. And so surely his love is better than wine, better than the richest earthly temporal joy one can imagine. Amen? What is the church? What is the church? The church is the object of Christ's love, a love that is better than wine. And so the church is the eternally happy bride of Jesus Christ. Praise him. And that brings us to our second verse from the song, from chapter 4, verse 10. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. And what does this most sacred text reveal to us regarding the nature of the church? Well, clearly the church bears the distinguishing mark of a most extravagant love for Christ in return. As John says, we love because he first loved us. The church is the object of Christ's love and Christ has become the object of the church's love, her first love. The object of our love, brethren, our love personally, individually, and our love corporately is our beloved bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We gather because we love Jesus. We gather to express our love for Jesus. For we are, we are those who have come to love Jesus Christ. Above all else, to love Jesus. We have gained a glimpse of his amazing love for us in his willingness to give himself, to suffer, to bleed for us. We have benefited from the many countless manifestations of his love for us. And his matchless love for us has softened our hearts and moved our souls to love him as he loved us, wanting to give ourselves wholly for him, wholly for his joy. Why does the church exist? The church exists for the joy of Christ. To offer ourselves, our very bodies, as a living sacrifice. To pour out our lives in an extravagant act of devotion and love for this one who first loved us and gave himself for us. Do you know anything of this love, brethren? I trust that you do, if you are indeed his. I trust that you do. But if you have no love for Christ... You have no love or you have no interest in the church. For the bride of Christ is marked in part by her love for her bridegroom. And if you have no love for Christ, it is because you have no interest in Christ. And so I would counsel you to look again to the cross upon which the Son of God died for sinner's sake. Look to his amazing love 
in giving himself to redeem his bride on the day that he died. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet? Our thorns compose so rich a crown. O sinner, survey the wondrous cross. Survey the wondrous cross and believe. Believe in your sins forgiven. Accept Accept what he has done for you. Receive, receive his love for you in the cross and be reconciled to your God and thereby love him in return. And gain then an interest in the blood of Christ becoming now a part of the bride of Christ, the church, his beloved The church is loved of Christ. The church finds her joy in Christ. The church loves Christ in return. And therefore, lastly, the church is the joy of Christ. For just as the church expresses her delight in his love for us, just as our joy is found in his love Brethren, so in a most amazing statement, the bridegroom repeats the very words of the bride back to her, expressing how just as she delights in his love, so too in like manner does he now delight himself in her love for him, in our love for him. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. Christ finds joy. Christ takes pleasure. Jesus is made glad by our love for him. The holding ground for the anchor of our joy, brethren, is the love of Christ for us. And in like manner, our bridegroom's joy is fixed in his bride's love for him. Not his eternal joy. The joy he knew in the bosom of the Father forever and ever, before ever he came into the world. But rather in view here, I think, is that joy set before him in his condescension and in his humiliation, the joy set before him for which he endured the cross, despising the shame, the joy he finds in the church's love for her Savior. I can't help but think here of that extravagant act of worship, that costly most costly expression of love to which I have already made a veiled reference. That extravagant act of worship in which Mary poured out a a life savings worth of expensive nard. The flask broken, its precious contents wasted in a moment in a most valued expression of devotion and love for her Lord. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Do you hear it? How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has anointed my body beforehand 
for burial. Oh, how Mary's love brought her Lord joy. Oh, how the aroma of her loving act as a sort of first fruits offering must have set before him that final and full joy of his Christ, of his church's love, even as he suffered on that tree for her. And oh, how the anticipation of that joy sustained him in his passion. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What is the church? What is the church? A place to pop into every other Sunday for an hour to pay your dues? Convenient place to find friends until it is no longer convenient. Come on. What is the church? What is the church? Church is the very joy of the King of Glory. Her love, our love, brethren is his delight, the delight of the Son of God. Is it any wonder, brethren, that the church would ever sing more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee, as the church desires above all else, more joy for thee, O Christ, more joy for thee. What is the church? What is the church to you? What is the church to Christ? May our precious bridegroom take much pleasure and find much joy in this church's love for him who loved us first. Amen.